Hello everyone and welcome to this webinar today. I'm Francis Seeley from Global Net 21 and Info Climate Action Forum. But in my past, I worked in television and radio. I was BBC producer on education television, mainly Open University, and also on community access, getting the public generally involved in making programmes about what they were doing. Now, I'm interviewing Trevor Blackman today because he's also involved in the media and communication. But the difference between his time now and my time then is a number of years and things have changed quite dramatically. So I thought it was a good idea to really talk around some of those changes because they're interesting. And in order to highlight those changes, I've chosen a background, as you can see, <laughs> which shows uh, the, the modern media we're talking about. Anyhow, Trevor, Thank you for joining us today. And first, can you just tell us very briefly a bit about yourself? Okay, well, at the moment, I'm the CEO for Edmonton Community Partnership, which is an alliance of 18 schools uh, across Edmonton and Enfield. And the main purpose is about improving the life chances of individuals of families but and in particular children so everything from enrichment uh, to extracurriculum programs to supporting those most in need and most marginalized in particular we're working very closely with the bulgarian community and alongside that i'm also the producer and presenter for maritime radio speech output um, and i produce a show called trevor blackman now on a sunday uh, which goes out uh, between one and three o'clock. And I also mentor a lot of people and get involved in events as well. So, yes, I think I think that's me. OK, so you do a lot. You also answered a lot of my next questions. But, um, you know, you talked about Edmonton Partnership and, and that's great because we, we know that partnerships exist and they're valuable. And that's your day job. But Maritime Radio Station, I mean, you say you work for it, but what is it? So Maritime Radio is a community station. It won its license uh, as a community station in 2017 and started broadcasting in 2018. And basically, it's the local radio station for Greenwich and also Kent as well. So it supports uh, over, well, close to 16,000 listeners uh, in a population of nearly two, over 200,000. Um, and it's everything from news and views and local music and entertainment. Um, it's a fun, it's a local station. It's what the old, where I started actually in, in local radio in the BBC. It's a, it's a local station for local area, uh, listening to the voices of local people and giving them a platform. So is your job just to produce or do you do something else as well? Do you present and produce and also find ways of engaging audiences? God, you're answering everything. Yes, it's all of those. Those. So I, I came on board as a speech producer um, to produce the, the talk show, which I, I present as well on, on a Sundays. Um, and the whole idea behind that and why Duncan Mark, Martin, who's our, our, our program manager, kind of said yes, it was about giving voice to diverse communities, in, in particular, yes, the black community, but for everyone, it's about giving voice. So it's about giving a platform for, for local organizations and, and groups, also artists as well. And, and where we have to, giving a voice to local activism and activists, um, whether that's, uh, you know, supporting an air-free zone within a certain area in Lewisham, 
or supporting a, a new emerging uh, theatre company. It's all about giving that platform and access really, not just to local people within the Greenwich and Kent area, but across London and also international as well. I do a lot of interviews uh, with Americans, um, South Africa, as well, you know, it, it's quite a, a diverse thing, but it's important. It's important to give people the opportunity to to be listened to, and it's also important sometimes, in in many ways, to advocate for, but also uh, to, in many ways, challenge views <clears> as well. <throat> so it, it, it's, it's a very open platform. It's quite interesting. I, mean, I was listening to that, and you was when I asked the last question, you said, "I do everything. I do all that." And in a way, that's a, that's a big difference between my old time, not what I'm doing now, because uh, I'm a bit like you, but what I used to do and what you do and what I do now. In my days, when I started, we didn't do everything. We had a huge organization. If I wanted to graph, do graphics, I had a graphic artist. If I wanted a scenic designer, I had a scenic designer. If I wanted a film crew or a radio unit, I would have a, a part of the BBC that would get it for me. We today, don't we? We have to be multi-skilled. It's a very different environment. No, absolutely. I think uh, the, the challenges coming out of the late 1990s into 2000s were the advancement in particularly digital audio and also video production. So there you then had everything at your fingertips. And if you had the opportunity and the time, you could sit down and master all of those things. Um, and then you move forward um, into the mid noughties and YouTube and you can just learn all these things. So, yeah, I think uh, particularly I think this came when I was working at, at, at Choice FM. Um, and I did news reading, but you know, you know, within the radio, you cut everything, you cut and splice, you edit it, your packages, you you put it out there, and then there was a, a move also to the visual side of things as well, and you just had to learn all of those things. And I think nowadays, and I think I remember a channel called I think it was Channel One, which was a news organisation, and there were and it was an old ITN editor who set it up but became the single-handed uh, news reporter. So not only did you shoot everything, you edit, edit everything, and then you put it out. And I think we've just grown from all of that, that multi-skilled, multi-talented, but, but purposeful in terms of, you know, you only need that one person nowadays to do everything. And at the time, it was also cheaper for the organisation <laughs> rather than having your camera sound and your editor as well. But yeah, I think it's just, We've just moved with the times, really. And, and you know, on an iPhone now, you can shoot a movie. You know, it's unheard of. Yeah, I, I remember when um, the Japanese were the first to come along with having a one-man crew, except for a one-woman crew. But it used to be men in those days. Thank goodness it's not just men now, but a one-person crew. Not only did they shoot the stuff and, and edit it, they also asked the questions. So they were, you know, shooting and they would go, and the next question is, and we were absolutely amazed in the BBC because we had four men crews, four women crews. They were all men again, usually. Um, so we had a cameraman, assistant cameraman, a spark electrician and a sound recordist. And so we had huge crews. So those were real, real big differences. And I remember on radio because we were one of the first departments in the BBC to be by media. We did radio and television. But with radio, as you said, we had to splice the tapes with a razor blade and put them together. So when I went freelance, you know, after 20 plus years working in the BBC and I had to do my own editing and we were going digital, I had to learn the skills of digital editing. 
buying capable audio or sound quality or whatever it is. <clears throat> and I found that quite exciting. And I really like digital editing, but I panicked when I couldn't upload the final stereo <laughs> result to back to the DAT tape, digital audio tapes that we had in those days. And, you know, I went through a, a real, real crisis at that time. But we all go through those, don't let we now? We, we learn, we're on a continuous day-to-day, week-by-week learning curve. Absolutely. It's a continuous kind of like cycle, but it's, I think you've just taken me back there talking about DAT tapes as well. And, and, but prior to that, I remember the Euro, do you remember the big chunky Euro that you had to take out and do the interviews with? And I remember one time I didn't charge it. Um, and I went out for an interview and I didn't get the interview because the Euro wasn't charged. And then I had to rush back in two hours, obviously all apologetic and say sorry and do it again. So yeah, you've taken me back then, but it is a thing that nowadays, and when I, when I, I cut everything in terms of my show on Maritime Radio, it's self-produced. And if I want to go into the studio, I do it live. And if not, I can do it as a pre-record, but I can cut everything, mix everything at home you know in unheard of back in the day you had to book a studio time you know going to the studio record it then slice it top and tail it and then hand it over to a producer who would upload it it's 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 completely different times now but you know it's also really good because you've got children as well you talk about uh, you know women and the advancements of women within the media also children you know i remember i was one of the first in bbc radio leicester to invite 13 to 14 year olds to produce their own show. Now they're everywhere and you can do it all from home on podcasts. It's, you know, the advancement is amazing. Yeah, I, I quite like your story about the Euro that didn't work because I had that too. I was interviewing the chairman of the London Port Authority, got my Ewer, this chunky sort of recorder from Broadcasting House, went to the location and it didn't work. And I had to do what you did. I had to run away for two hours, get a new one, come back, Luckily, he was very sympathetic and we did it. But we we all had those sort of problems then. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the other differences between then and now is oh, what I wanted to ask you before is, you know, you have a podcast, you have a streaming podcast radio channel. Why did you choose that particular format rather than, say, having a YouTube channel? I think for me, it it just was more accessible because of the fact that you can get it out on many different uh, platforms. So not only is it the kind of the Android, you know, the Apple channel, whatever, Apple TV and all of that, you, you just get it across a whole multiple layer of channels. And I know YouTube is that one essence, but I wanted to reach different audiences. As I said earlier on, you know, I interview people in the United States, I interview people in, in, in Africa, also in India, as well as the UK. And there is that access to them, particularly on Android. Um, so it just it just made more more sense to me. Um, that's not to say that I don't link it to uh, YouTube as well, because it's all very simple to link it all up nowadays. You know, you can have multiple platforms. But yeah, for me, and and after discussions with a friend, it was just it just made more more sense. And and also, I, I was kind of like, you know, I wanted to set a scene for whatever I want to do next as well and you know i've got ambitions to i'm building a house in in gambia for instance and i've got ambitions to move in into the african market in terms of broadcasting media it just made more sense to get myself out there um i mean what you said about multiple channels is again a, a very relevant point because in my day 
the sort of television I was doing, educational television of university, mm -hmm. community access was to a specific audience. It was in a way narrow casting, but because the only way we could do that was through broadcasting on, you know, one of the terrestrial channels, the BBC, that was the only way we could do it. So, you know, we were taking up time. I remember having a big argument. We had a big argument with the controller of BBC Two who didn't like us on his channel because he wanted stuff that got a higher viewing rating. Um, so, you know, having narrow casting or broadcasting had its problems. You don't have but, that because you have multiple channels, as you said, don't you? Absolutely. And I, I think you can't you can't be in that kind of prehistoric way of thinking anymore and i and I even even you know big broadcasters realize that now that the audience out there is very diverse their their reach is even more so but their attention is very limited as well so you know you can't just set, stick to one formula and think that's it you know and when you talk about viewing or listener listenership you know people dip in and out at different times now um, and it's very hard to gauge unless you have, you know, a big company out there looking, you know, if it's Rajar or whatever. It's very hard to gauge. But but what I do know, and I think maybe something you may answer as well in terms of the reason why you've decided to move within that sphere of the podcast is because it allows you to talk to different people and get different viewpoints as well. I get lots of feedback and ideas for my show because I'm on those multiple channels. And if I was very focused within one and just stayed at Maritime, for instance, you know, the input coming back from audiences would be very limited. I get a vast spectrum, which allows me, because of those contacts and networks, to interview different people about different things, you know, you know, real people, as I say, real stories and inspiring in many ways stories as well. But I mean, why did you decide that that was a platform that you wanted to go down? Well, I decided simply because I saw the model that the BBC was using at the OU and so on was going to be outdated. Mm. Um, you know, it, it wasn't uh, sort of designed for um, the new age of um, cassettes and, and, and streaming and online learning, for example. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I knew it was going to come to an end because mm -hmm. BBC was no longer required. It was it had competition out there. Other people could do it. So I went freelance first and I actually did freelance programs then for the Open University rather than through okay. BBC. Um, uh, and they came through me because I'd worked with them before and it's great. And then online learning came and then yeah. streaming came and I had to learn that. And then when social networking came, Facebook and Instagram and, mm. and Twitter and so on, I realized that you could create a synergy between mm. the, you know, the broadcasting you did and mm -hmm. all of those social networks which, which added traction to it. And so that became both stressful and exciting mm -hmm. at the same time. Um, <laughs> got, yeah, you're going to respond. No, no, I was going to say, I, no, no, I, I can imagine because I, I can empathize with it with the stressful thing. But I also think that what gives you any and and even even me that kind of that background to deal with those stresses was was equally the training and the experience. And I know if you're going to ask me this, but you know, for some broadcasters nowadays, or for those who are just in that realm of podcasting and I, I get to see a lot you know I do think that I do think the need is for some people to do that and have that training to really before they put themselves out there there's a lot of people learning on the job and in many ways at 16 I was thrown into it but I had that additional training as well and, and I have to thank the BBC because you know 
God, you know, it just gave me a lot editorial and all those things. But there are a lot of people learning on the job. And I think sometimes that you need to have in order to deal with those different situations and training and terms, not just an element of I learned this on YouTube, for example, but I actually learned this, you know, doing it before I put myself out there for, for the whole world to see. I'm a sort of great believer in learning by doing it and then having the training, because um, if you have the training first, they tell you all sorts of things you don't want to know. But if you do it and then you choose your training around the things that you find difficult, that's far, far more important. And, and you then make contacts when you've got social networks and you can ask people and you mm -hmm. can have meetings with them online and that can help you a lot. So. In the new media world, there is a lot more collaboration, isn't there? Oh God, yes, absolutely. And I, and it even goes, you know, you talked about Emerson Community Partnership. I don't believe anything should be, and anyone should be in a silo. Um, you you you've got to draw in different things, and you learn, and you learn from your mistakes as well. There's people out there to mirror that back, um, to seek advice, to lean on. So, you know, in order for anyone, I believe in, in anything you do, I think you need to have a strong network, you need to work in partnership, but working on your silo just makes you, uh, you know, you, you start to, I don't know, I don't think you grow as a person, I don't think you grow as an industry, I don't think you grow in, in, in Edwards Community Partnership as a charity, you need to be working with people all of the time. But, you know, I think, yes, you do learn on the job but you can also learn on the job whilst you're training that's why you do projects that's why you know you go out and you, you experiment but yeah i think it's a bit of both i suppose i mean the, the the silos you talk about are you know quite important i mean in my day we have very strong silos because of the technology being limited i mean can you mm -hmm. imagine working like i did where there was no um VHS, so you couldn't distribute your material. There were no audio cassettes, let alone, let alone streaming. I mean, can you imagine working in those situations and how different that was? Oh God, yeah, I, I, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna be honest, and I and credit to you and, and those that came before uh, for building foundations. But no, because um, I think of the opportunity i would say preparation makes opportunities and i was 14 years of age in leicester delivering sandwiches and one of the places i had to deliver sandwiches for was bbc radio leicester and after the summer holidays i decided to pluck up the courage after i built a relationship with the receptionist to say look i want a job here cheeky 14 year old i want a job um and in the end she introduced me to a producer who produced a local afro-caribbean show called talking blues and then from there, I got trained up as a youth reporter. Um, but I had to be in that space, in that place, in order to make that opportunity. Nowadays, you can be online, social media, et cetera, in order to make those connections, in order to create those opportunities. Now, it was hard for me back in the 80s to do that. I can't imagine, well, I do imagine, because a lot of in the past and even it's played out now in some ways is about who you know in order to get in whereas now maybe i think it's a it's more of an equal playing field you know talent can speak for itself yes you still need to in some cases know the right people but you can get yourself out there and you can be that 17 year old guy in durban who knows absolutely no one and get yourself known to someone in london or new york and suddenly you know you're presenting a talk show for the whole world to see you know it, it, it's the opportunities now are and the, the ways to get in are much better 
but my God, we stand on your shoulders and those before you in order to where we are right now, because I remember how hard it was for me. I just seized an opportunity. But if I wasn't in that place and in that space, I don't know where I'd be today. But I mean, you know, your past where you had as a cheeky 40 year old boy, as a, rather than as a cheeky man, as we're all cheeky in our profession. Um, I mean, you, you, you had to go out, you had to make those contacts in real in real terms, face to face. And that built confidence and resilience. And that's really important, isn't it? Because when you're doing it today on social networks, people often go in without having had that background of resilience and confidence, and they can make an awful lot of mistakes. No, absolutely. And that's what it goes back to, to my previous point about the training. But as you equally say, you know, you've kind of, you've got to be in it to win it. And I just think, um, this is why that point of not working in silos or just having a strong network and that network could just be family and friends just to be there for you to lean on uh, that network can be other people who you reach out to on social media you know not the trolls but the ones who are actually there to uplift you and not bring you down but it is it is hard but you know I've gone through a lot to for where I am not just professionally but also personally as well you know from from being, you know, in foster care. There's a lot, there's a lot to my story, which has kind of built up that resilience as well. But I, I say it to young people that I mentor almost every day, that preparation makes those opportunities. And it's okay not to make it work the first day because there's always tomorrow, but you've got to make sure you understand you've got to get up tomorrow in order to be in it, in order to learn from it, in order to move yourself on. So you know at the end of the day resilience is built over time but it's about having the right support structures around you or re or making them yourself yeah i mean i think that's important too about telling people that mistakes don't matter as much as they think it does that yeah. failure can often lead to success and equally success can lead to failure and if you can get people to understand that in especially in the media business that's important Back in the old days, when you worked for a broadcasting uh, company, you were scared of mistakes, weren't you? Because oh God, yeah. your managers <laughs> were going to come down on you. Whereas today, you can afford to make more mistakes and get out of it. Absolutely. I think, and also I think because of that generation, it's, it's part of my generation, it's slightly a bit more forgiving. But I, I remember when I was working for, for BETV News here in the UK, which is owned by the Americans, that if you thought if you made one mistake, that's it, your career's done, you're, you're out of there. Um, but actually, the producer I had was really quite forgiving and introduced me then uh, to the head of news at Choice, and that's how I got moved on. But yeah, you, you in any career, I think, in anything, you, you fear your bosses to a certain degree, but you've got to also realise there's going to be a point when you've got to really show up to show them who you are. So yeah, my thing is always don't worry, as you said, when it comes to mistakes, you'll learn. But I also think you'll also find allies. The more honest you are about when you make those mistakes, it won't be as detrimental to your career or yourself as you think. The other thing that really sort of interests me as well is about community engagement and the difference between then and now. I mean, back again in, in, in the early days in the 1970s, <clears throat> when I did live open access programs in Liverpool on gender, race and unemployment. 
Um, I didn't have the social networks to make all the contacts. I had to spend a lot of time there getting to know people, getting into the communities, working it very hard and getting their trust. Um, I mean, do you have that when you use the new means that we have now? It, it seems to be much easier. We get on Zoom and we make contact. We don't even visit the place. So in a way, there's a deficit, but there, there is the advantage that it's easier to do. Yeah, I mean, it's easier to reach out to individuals, organizations. I said, you know, I, I do a lot of activism work um, and I understand what you're saying about not just the 70s, I'd say 80s and 90s, where you're on the ground, you're building those relationships and building the trust. But the trust element still exists. You have to be credible uh, because at an instant, all people do is check you out. So, you know, they'll check you out on social media, they'll see your footprint, etc. So you've still got to, you've got to be credible, um, you've still got to uh, build that trust, but it is easier to make those connections, those inroads. Um, but still, you know, it's, it is about you also doing your research, your due diligence, you know, making sure that you are meeting and speaking to the right people, not just those who put out one statement about so-and-so and you think, okay, now they can speak for it. No, for some people, as you all, as you well know, kind of jump on bandwagons and, and just want to be that person when actually there's no substance behind it. So you still got to do that research. You still got to do your work if you are, you know, I would say, uh, a, a valuable and credible uh, broadcaster stroke journalist. You've, 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 you've got to do your work as well. I don't just, you know, see someone on a Zoom and think, okay, great, let's have a conversation. I'm going to interview you tomorrow. I will say, let's have a conversation and let's just see. And then I'll make decisions after that. But, you know, I real credible in, 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 in the world of media anyway, real credible journalists, unless you're just going for that it factor, you know, that so-called celebrity of the moment, or unless they have that, that kind of uh, kudos, you have to make sure you do your work and you have to build your trust. It's as simple as that. And then you're creating your own networks as well. But, but, but creating that trust is about engagement. I remember way oh, back totally. when, when I was in Liverpool and I wanted to do a programme with the British-born black community, We've been there for generations and talk steps. And the programme that we were going to do was black and British. And Panorama also wanted to do a programme and they wouldn't do both. And we had to turn up and put our case. Um, and Panorama basically said, look, if, if you do it with us, you'll get a lot of exposure. And they had Charles Wheeler making the case and so on. And he was a, then one of the main producers then. But they chose the programme I did because I had made those links in the community. And I'd worked with the radical element too, who, who were on the rise. So, you know, if you don't have that in-depth engagement, um, you don't get the sort of trust that you're talking about, do you? No, absolutely. And you, you, you've got to realise, as an example, um, coming out the whole 2020 pe pandemic, George Floyd, and you had a lot of media outlets, also a lot of companies as well who dreamt on the kind of the inclusion and equity banner without any real substance. And, you know, black and brown people see that, see through that, because, you know, we're looking now, as I have with certain organizations who at the time were, you know, raising that flag. It's all about inclusion. It's all about equity. We've got to make sure there's fair representation. We've got to make sure voices are heard. And if you look now, they've done a, a massive U-turn. There aren't as many people, particularly black and brown people within senior positions or, or positions of influence their inclusion agenda is slightly watered down so people see that people see the dishonesty within that 
And when it comes to broadcasters as well, people see broadcasters as well who are just quite disingenuous in terms of why they're doing something and what they want to get out of it. So it's to me no surprise that you know probably they went with you in the Open University because you actually done the legwork. You'd sat down. You sat down with all fractions as well. You were willing to to listen and not just speak to, and then have a conversation rather than a demand of this is what we can offer you, come with us, because my name's Charles Wheeler. I know they, um, it was quite, quite good because of the relationship I developed. I went up there as well, the year after the riots. And I was there late at night in Granby Street talking to the local community. And then I said, I better go home now. And they said, oh no, you can't go home by yourself. Uh, there's so much tension now that if you go home, they think you're a plain clothes policeman and beat you up, we'll take you to the, boundaries of the area so the whole lot came out with their Alsatian dogs and their wives and they all escorted me to the uh, boundaries where the riots were were oh were, wow were standing and I had an argument with the riot police too at that time but I was rescued from that but I mean it's it's those sort of relationships yeah. you 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 do have to develop and, I, and they're I, gold I, they're gold there aren't something that you can just try and create they they happen organically when people see the sincerity within you do you know it's they're organic yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one question as well, which I could quite interesting in terms of maritime and so on. You, you know, I'm very interested in, in climate change and I'm involved with Enfield Climate Action Forum. I mean, how important is local radio and modern forms of communication to get that message over? And how can you be open with the science about it and not, you know, get balanced with the deniers and the people who will threaten us? I mean, how do you get that climate change message over? I think, and I can I speak for D Duncan and and me as, as as head of speech. It's about just giving that open space. Now, when we talk about the denier aspect, let's deal with that, which is your latter point. I think there's a time and there's a space for that, and given and given that, if you want to airspace but I don't like to overcrowd so within me there are points where I bring people together and you say that's where you get that balanced argument you know you get you know editorial get both sides etc but there is also a point where you just need to give a platform for that point of view and then within the questioning but not you can have that kind of like that dialogue but it needs to have time to breathe so for us at Maritime Radio and in your point in terms of climate change we do things, and this is why I'd like you to come on. I'd like you to come on the show so we can have a conversation about it, about what you're doing in Enfield, about the issues that are prominent, prominent not just here, that have echoes, effects across London and across the world. And at the same time, I can bring someone else in at a different point. And who knows? I'd love to, as I call them, have living room conversations. And when I have living room conversations, these are usually an hour, where I have those opposing views. It goes back to my whole BBC days of making sure we have that balanced uh, point of view. But look, it's for me, and I can speak for me and Maritime Radio, everybody has a voice. Um, there are certain voices that need to be turned down because I don't think they're positive. And I don't think that in, enhances in any way community cohesion or, or, or brings forward anything. But there are voices and areas and issues that need to be amplified, that need to be turned up. And I think we are very good. Um, we're a very good station at doing that. We've won some awards for doing that, actually. Uh, but actually, our listeners are the best test for that, who tell us that and who challenge us as well. 
you know, we're very much into having local voices on, not just because you're a part of something, just because you're local and you've got something to say. Okay. Um, I mean, I'll be very happy to come into your living room at some point and engage in that sort of uh, discussion and dialogue. I mean, we sort of come to the end of our half hour now and we could have gone on forever. Probably. <laughs> um, I mean, just to finish then, I mean, if people wanted to find more about Maritime and, and what you do there, how would they do that? Where would they go? Okay, first thing, head to our website, which is maritimeradio.co.uk, or you can follow us on all socials at MaritimeLDN on Instagram, Twitter, also on TikTok as well. Um, so, yeah, that's how you can get in touch with Maritime Radio. Okay, well, thank you for doing that. I mean, that, that's been really interesting, and it, it's great talking about the changes over the years, not just in, in terms of the technology, but how the technology is impacted on how we engage with people and how we engage with communities. And I think you've done that well, and we should do this again sometime around, another, and that around another focus point, because it's a really interesting discussion. So, you know, thank you for joining us. Australia. Thank you, Francis. And we'll finish this interview now.